0: We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters, and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. In 1980, the median house price in Melbourne was $40,800. Fast forward to 2016, and the median price of a house was $713,000. With property prices rising across the country, the concept of the Australian dream house on its own block with a front and backyard is becoming more like a fantasy. This was in part because median income didn't have the same rate of growth as property prices, so the gap between house income and house expense became wider every year. This increased gap means that many Australians are finding it harder to own a home. To address this, there are more apartments being built in our major cities than ever before, with most apartments having smaller floor areas than standalone houses. As Australians look for homes they can afford, architects are designing new forms of housing that can meet the needs of a growing population with complex financial burdens. I'm Daniel Moore and in today's episode of Hearing Architecture, we've asked architects from around Australia how architects can play an active role in addressing housing affordability. Saying that the housing affordability issue in Australia is complicated would be a gross understatement. There are so many parts that come into play. One of the strategies used is building lots of replicable spec homes on cheap land. Building on this land has increasingly pushed the edges of our cities out, resulting in suburban sprawl that disadvantages many people who live there. Rob McGoran pulls apart the way affordable housing is currently being provided in Australia and how we should steer our focus towards urban development in order to get the best results.
1: So housing affordability has been a career journey for me in both advocacy and uh, looking at the train wreck that is the Australian Housing policy and funding program that we've been faced with we've had a um, approach in australia where housing has been promoted as a speculative investment product and in other parts of the world there has been a recognition that housing is in fact essential infrastructure that we should be saying housing is a fundamental right for all Australians, and housing of quality. We also see that in this myth of it's much cheaper to build a house on the fringe for the households that live there. That might have been true when we were building garden suburbs in the 1920s, but the evidence now says those households are spending ridiculous times in their cars to access work and access services, that their children are likely to grow up with less opportunities. One researcher I saw said that if you had an intelligence and obesity index, you could conclude that for many parts of outer suburban Australia, they would get indexes where you could say, buy here and your children will be fat and dumb. Which is a, in the first instance, a uh, for many people, insulting. The challenge that we have is that the evidence suggests it's absolutely right. That you are likely to see children more obese. You are likely to see their ability to move into tertiary education and higher quality jobs much lower, the role models that they have much less, youth unemployment much higher. And uh, so the way we shape our cities has to change. And if it's going to change, the magnitude of the challenge facing us is also one that can't be managed successfully by saying, we're going to rely on mum and dad investors in Australia and China to build, say, uh, the 40% of Melbourne that has to be built in the next 25 years. And to do that in a way that aligns with what we need the city to be. So, if we're going to build the housing that is affordable for the people who need to live there near where the jobs are, in the 21st century. We know that those jobs are more likely to be both in the centre and in the middle ring suburbs, for example, around our major university and health clusters, where we're seeing other emergent enterprises occurring. And we need scale of development. We need New York City, for example, has a 10-year program where they're building 20,000 homes a year. And that's the sort of magnitude of our challenge. We've got 80,000 people on our public housing waiting list. We've got nearly 50% of renters who are struggling to meet rent. And we've got home buyers who have been priced out of the housing market at that end of the market. So we need the institutions to invest in housing. Therefore, we need to recalibrate where are we providing the subsidies? Are we providing them to negative gearers or are we providing them by way of meeting the gap between what pension funds or superannuation funds need to invest large scale in these uh, initiatives and what they are getting from rents that are modulated.
0: That was Rob McGoran from MGS Architects, based in Melbourne. In addition to Rob's comments, Shanine Fanton and Belinda Allwood discussed the issues with Australia's affordable housing models and how other typologies could bring better results to the cities of the future.
2: So you look at affordable housing uh, across the country now and the, the model, more often than not, is cookie-cutter homes being rolled out from Cairns down to Geelong and you look anywhere along the coast and the houses look the same, the um, the subdivisions look the same. They're not designed for place, I, you know, I look at them and I think, well, there's the ghettos of the future right there. You, you look at things like green stars, sustainable communities, and they start to bring in a structure of, of working at what, what it is that makes a community sustainable, um, what is it that we need to start thinking about more and more. And there are some examples of this that are happening around the country, but we need more.
3: Yeah, I think we need to get out of this preconceived notion that a house is a detached dwelling on a separated lot and certainly in regional areas where units are not the norm, most people live in houses. Getting local government and developers to understand that there are social housing models that have strata title involved in them, that can have rent-to-buy related schemes involved in them, that have shared and communal areas. There are many great examples from across the world, but we're we're slowly, slowly starting in Australia to see them. Certainly, there's a lot of caution, and unless developers can see that there's a certain, um, I guess, economic Gain or benefit in the scale of undertaking a development of that kind, then they'll be cautious not to invest in it. So I guess this again leads to the issue of partnerships between people who are doing the developing and have the cash flow to do it, and the people who have the capacity to design social
2: communities. Yeah, I think though when you're talking about shift or change in in any environment, um, so we're talking about built environment here, for things like sustainable communities, you can't rely on them to be developer-led because the main outcome or the bottom line is always going to be about capital return. You really need, it, it's about supply and demand. You need for people to be um, demanding a certain product or, or not wanting to purchase the status quo, what's on offer now, which is, which is not sustainable. Uh, so it's a process. It's a process of transition and change. And you, you look, for example, again back at the Green Star model. It took the best part of ten years for Green Star rated buildings to become desirable, demanded because people saw the benefits of it. And it didn't right at the beginning of Green Star. It was uh, people had a fear about the cost of building sustainably. But um, when the benefits are demonstrated, then the supply and demand starts to shift a bit.
0: That was Shanine Fenton and Belinda Allwood from POD, based in Cairns. Implementing initiatives that could assist with housing affordability in Australia are sometimes prevented before a pen hits the paper. This is sometimes due to planning regulations that prevent certain types of buildings from being built in particular areas. Joe Rees tells us about some of the regulatory requirements that could be adapted to reduce energy consumption and reduce the need for cars. The
4: predominance of our building stock in Australia has no architectural input particularly housing and housing affordability suffers a huge amount for that it really does and so does our energy consumption apparently 20% of Australia's energy consumption is through energy use by buildings and if architects had a greater input to the design of buildings I think that that figure would be significantly reduced so that's my take on the overall picture, and I think as you if you come down from that giant perspective, the next port of call is planning. I think that our planning rules across the country need to be reviewed significantly, particularly here in the Northern Territory we have the problem where we have these segregated zones of residential with no commercial. It's not possible to walk to the shop to buy a litre of milk, you have to drive five kilometres because some crazy planning idea says that you can't mix up zoning. You can't even mix up building use. I mean, it's beyond belief. So I think that would help. So it would also help if we had much better ways of addressing energy use than what we've got. I know the building codes trying very hard to do that, but there's limitations to what you can do with regulations. And if there was better take up of architectural advice to planning suburbs that work for buildings, planning cities that work for people, not cars, we would have a better outcome overall. So the sort of things that I get really excited about are public transport being improved. That would make a massive difference to the way that our cities work. I think if we had excellent public transport and we had lots of attached Dwellings, low scale townhouses or buildings, they have a really good opportunity to make good lifestyles for people that are affordable and consume less energy. And in the future, it's going to be the cost of energy that's the big deal. So all these over designed spaces are too big, the spaces are too big, and they don't have doors that connect them, are an absolute waste of energy.
0: That was Joe Reese from Ajar Architects based in the Northern Territory. The issue of mixed building types isn't just a problem in regional areas, it applies to most of Australia's urban landscape as well. The most basic example is when zoning controls keep residential and commercial buildings separated, so people have to travel far distances to go to work. On a small scale this can be manageable, but on a large scale it can negatively impact a lot of people. Rod Simpson tells us how housing affordability doesn't purely relate to the cost of bricks and mortar.
5: We've really misunderstood housing affordability in in many ways. Firstly, we obviously need to recognise there's structural problems in finance, taxation and, and the legal systems that we've set up, which is driving the unaffordability. Not so much to do with, it's not really an architectural problem. Is it a planning problem? I think it is a planning problem to the extent that the affordability of housing needs to be thought of as being the cost of the non-discretionary spend that a household has to live in a particular place. Now what I mean by that is, it's not just the cost of the housing, it's also the cost of the transport to get access to education and employment and uh, recreation and so forth. So the the cost of transport plus the cost of the housing is actually a trade-off that people balance and so again we've got some very perverse planning requirements where in many places people are required to accommodate cars in places where in fact they might choose not to. And that's not theoretical, that's not modelled, this is actual behaviour. So around railway stations in Sydney for example, most railway stations within about 400 metres of those railway stations, between 25 and 30% of households don't own a car because they don't need to, because they can actually get around and obviously can undertake their lives without owning a car because they do. There's the proof. So housing affordability I think is something then in terms of yes typologies that I touched on earlier that might open up a whole range of possibilities that aren't possible under our planning system at the moment. New typologies we need to think about how they might be allowed to develop because at the moment they're not and there's not a single developer who's going to then push really hard to try and develop those new typologies because why would they? What is the motivation to actually produce something at lower cost, at high risk? It's clearly not something that any developer is going to do. So there has to be, we have to have a discussion about how we allow these new forms to emerge. And then there's also the way that that people might want to cohabit. We know that the people who are suffering probably the greatest um, impact of housing unaffordability and in fact homelessness a single women over the age of 50. They're the ones who really have a lot of difficulty. What's the alternative to homelessness? Well, in Canada, in fact, a lot of the cooperatives are in fact older women, older single women who are living together and living as a co-op and cooperating and sharing facilities, but also supporting one another. So that's not really a physical form but it may have a physical manifestation in terms of the design. And for these forms to emerge, there needs to be new legal systems and new planning regimes that allow them to to emerge. And yes, consequence of that, or the result of that, might be dramatically improved affordability.
0: That was Rod Simpson from the Greater Sydney Commission. There are a lot of considerations people need to make when they buy a home. The balance of someone's income and cost of the home is a major concern. So if someone chooses to buy something that's cheap but it's expensive to run or it's defective, they may end up spending more money than on a slightly more expensive smaller home. Kylie Shunans tells us about the importance of understanding the difference between the capital cost of buying a house and the ongoing costs that families have to wear when they buy into inefficient or non-compliant housing.
6: Teaching clients that affordable housing isn't just about the cost to build up front it's educating clients and the end users that affordable housing is the life cycle of that building. So you might save yourself $10,000 on the construction of a house up front when you're actually building it. But if that, if you've used cheaper materials, if you've used imported materials that don't comply with Australian standards or that have issues that they're only going to last a couple of years that don't have a proper environmental footprint um, then you think about that building it's going to be here for the next 50 100 years and the cost of repair and maintenance and ongoing costs and the ongoing um, impact to you and your family in terms of your health and well-being as well is significantly more than that $10,000 that you've saved in the initial construction cost. So I think developers are even coming around to that that realisation for apartments, for example, that get sold off the plan or get sold to owner-occupiers. There's so much choice these days for people when they're looking to buy various housing products, whatever they are, that um, that people are realising it's not just an economic benefit in terms of affordable housing, it's an environmental, a social and a personal benefit in terms of the, um, the, the affordable housing component as well.
0: That was Kylie Shunans from the Fratel Group in WA. In order to increase the likelihood of good apartment design, some councils have introduced apartment design guidelines. Some architects think they restrict the creativity of design, while others believe that design standards, such as Sep 65 in Sydney, have improved apartment design across the board. Professor Philip Tallis tells us about how planning rules impact the way apartments are designed for the better, and also introduces us to a simple question he puts to developers and architects when he's reviewing new projects as a councillor
7: what we say to our multiple developer clients if you're not prepared to live in the unit or have your mother or your daughter live in the unit don't design the unit if you're not prepared to live in that bedroom it's a bad bedroom we try to put them in the situation of the worst unit and so if there's no unit you are prepared to or no part of the building you are prepared to occupy that's a mistake of design and that's something that that um, i use that argument as well when i'm uh, on design review panels and the like, and you're in a hostile situation with a developer, you need to challenge them on terms that they can understand. So on the one hand you challenge them with the housing rules which should be amenity-based, and Sep 65 in New South Wales has at least some of that. Most planning rules are written in the negative and don't take the point of view of the occupant over the long term, and they don't sufficiently uh, articulate amenity and environmental consciousness. So things like daylight and fresh air. I mean, if you look at the history of housing across millennia, almost all housing up till the last few decades has two rooms deep maximum. If you look at uh, where I grew up in three storey walk up, spec built, cheap uh, apartment buildings, even the bathroom and the laundry had an openable window. All the stairs always had openable windows on every level. These things, for me, are non-negotiable. And if the planning rules today don't have these things, it's a failure of the planning rules. And that's what we see repeatedly. Um, When it comes to affordability, I can now, wearing a councillor hat, bring that to the table. And so at the City of Sydney, where I'm a councillor with obviously a very sympathetic majority of councillors, we've launched an affordable housing challenge. So that's actually at play at the moment. It's called alternative housing. And um, We had about 900 registrations, we had 241 entrants. Um, the judging's uh, on right now, I think, actually in this building, probably upstairs from where I'm sitting, and that'll be announced. But we don't simply want it to be an ideas version. We've actually convinced the city to offer some sites where models can be built, and what we need are replicable models that can be built at scale, across the metropolitan area of not just Sydney, but every city. So we, wearing a public hat, with an architect's eyes and an architect's consciousness, we're pushing this agenda. And it's, I think, contingent on us to push, uh, as a profession, progressive agendas by any means that we can. That was Professor Philip Tallis from Hill Tallis
0: Architecture and Urban Planning, based in Sydney. As architects are tasked with designing more apartment buildings, it might seem that architects just need to design cheaper buildings. But as new regulations are implemented, building material and labour prices rise, all while the population continues to grow, there are multiple factors that impact building prices far more than purely its design. Joe Ajayas shares his thoughts on the densification of housing, and also how architects play a small role amongst a lot of other contributors when it comes to addressing the
8: issues of housing affordability. I think housing affordability is obviously a key issue for every Australian city at the moment because we are in housing stress and our affordability of housing is obviously diminishing if you look at the statistics certainly over the last 15 years or so. However I think at the same time we're probably seeing the biggest transition in our cities in their history. Certainly Sydney and Melbourne are transforming at the moment. It was only two or three years ago that the number of and type of dwellings being constructed has reached a tipping point in that we are now constructing more apartments than we are detached dwellings and that's a major kind of cultural change in the way that we occupy our cities. so obviously it also represents a significant opportunity for how we frame the cities that we want to occupy into the future. All of this should address or help address the affordability issue. I think a key issue though, in having people live in denser, more urban environments is to ensure that we have the amenity, that bigger is in fact better. And by amenity, I mean obviously transport, the, the ability to live closer to employment, the social amenity in terms of the cultural infrastructure of course, schools and so forth. And of course, landscape and and parks and a variety of parks from passive through to active. So all of these things need to be addressed while we densify our cities. And if we can get that mix right, potentially we can create a new type of Australian city. And one that I would suggest is better than the sprawling um, suburbs that we now kind of largely occupy. And, And I must say, which is being increasingly rejected if you look at where the market interest is. People, I think, were happy to trade the backyard and the large home for a smaller dwelling that comes with all of these benefits by way of the amenity that I said. And I suppose most particular is the need or the desire to reduce travel time to and from work. I think the other thing that we need to be conscious about in regard to affordability is that we do not have all the answers as as, as architects, and to have an expectation that we can address affordability ourselves as a profession is probably highly naive. I mean, there's a lot of factors that affect house or dwelling prices. Uh, Of course, there's been the recent debate around negative gearing, which has a major or potentially a major impact and a supply issue. But I think broadly housing policy and economic policy areas that we traditionally are not engaged in kind of uh, a key to kind of setting the agenda. I suppose the best that we can do as an architect is advocate that housing affordability is something that government should be conscious of and continually addressing. And in the areas that we do have influences in the nature and type of cities that we occupy, the quality of these new apartments that we're designing, and thankfully within New South Wales, we do have SEP 65, and I think that's a great model for other states. And indeed, as a profession, we've advocated for its use in other states, particularly Victoria. I think we should be advocating for those issues where we can contribute and have influence but understand that there's a bigger context um, to housing affordability. That was Joe
0: Gius from Cox Architects based in Sydney. As Australia moves away from detached houses towards apartment buildings, there is inevitably going to be a transition from living large to living small. Balancing the needs that households might have now and what it will need in the future is something that apartment buyers eventually have to reckon with. Lee Hillam tells us about the issue of housing sizes and how providing extra-large houses don't always yield the best results.
9: Look really I think that the issue about affordable housing is it could really um, be helped a lot by architects getting better at understanding how to explain to people what the value of good design is. So so valuing a quality, quality space over quantity of space would be really the first thing that you could do because part of what people think is unaffordable about housing is that they can't get the space that they think they need. So they think that they're a family of four people, they need 250 square meters without a question, and they need two car parking spaces and they need all of these things, but you could build a house that's 140 square metres, that was well designed and it would actually be a better place for them, a happier house for them, function a lot better, so uh, architects mostly understand that, but somewhere along the line we, we haven't been able to communicate that to the people who are buying and living in the houses, and you know, real estate agents have got a lot to answer for, I think there needs to be a better connection between architects and the people who are actually marketing our projects in most cases they they're selling the houses so if we can get a better dialogue and communication between the real estate agents and their people who are educated about what makes something good and or applicable to a certain family or a certain buyer because obviously i think the really key thing is to have a lot of diversity of housing you know i might want to live in in a house that's quite large because i've got you know a stack of kids and a lot of stuff but then other people will want to live a more minimalist life and at the moment there's so little variety for people and people who want to live quite singularly without you know interacting with the community other people are really happy to uh, live in an apartment block where a lot of things are shared but you just get no variety in the market if you were to go out and look for something you know affordable now what you would get is a two-bedroom apartment over and over and over and over again you would be offered a two-bedroom apartment and that's just it actually is applicable for almost nobody a two-bedroom apartment it's like two single people sharing or a couple with no kids who want to have a spare room for their bicycles you know that's that's a really small section of the society but that's what mostly is being built by far the majority of everything that's being built
0: That was Lee Hillam from Dun Hillam Architects, based in Sydney. By moving away from the old standard house with a quarter-acre block towards apartment-style living, Australians will be creating a new urban culture. Thinking about apartments as the new standard of housing creates an opportunity to think in a completely different way about how we live and how cities should be developed over time. Peter Stutchbury talks about the need for a new building model that meets the needs of modern Australians and goes beyond what was expected in the past.
10: To think that a culture or a group of people or a country would do the same answer to a problem year after year after year after year without change mystifies me. I I don't understand that. You know. I mean, Certainly in the instance where that building is infallible, yes, or that building, but you know people are dynamic, they're not static, and the main thing that causes that dynamism is change, like technological change or era change, so you know your industrial era, your machine era, technological, they, they cause change, enormous change. To not adapt or move with the change is just irresponsible. So the change that's been caused at the moment really is the density of cities. You know, particularly our cities because they are so sparsely populated, so they, because they could be, but not sensibly populated because what we did was we occupied one of the most fertile basins which is an old river delta in Australia, which is the Sydney Basin. It would have been much better occupied by farms which it was to the west up until recently. And we're now infilling all those farms, which is beautiful, fertile, vegetable growing land with houses, you know, absolutely stupid. So what we need to do is rather than try and emulate the quarter acre block with the backyard, front yard and freestanding house is we need to develop a new model for a new culture, for new people and we need to look at what they need and I suggest what they need is cheap housing, not bad housing. But you know, you need to be able to buy a room which is 35 square meters and it's a little living area, a bed sleeping area and a bathroom and a kitchen. And it works really well for you, you know, and it works really well for, for, you know, 600 million people in India. (laughs) And it works really well for, you know, 50 million people in Japan. You know, are we just too used to big buildings? Are we just too used to luxury and like space? Yes, we are. We don't have, you know, we'll get in a car and we'll travel around Australia in the back of a utility or whatever, but we won't live in a house that's, you know, I mean, I lived in a tent for five years and it was 38 square meters. I didn't suffer. I'm not, you know, the worst for wear, so, my response to that is that it doesn't have to be cheap housing, it has to be smaller housing, it has to be sensible housing, we've got like a whole culture of people, a whole sort of age group of people who who would love to have something that was available to them and they don't. There's no developer daring enough to do the small room you know, but I I, guarantee to walk off the shelf you know and that they'd make money maybe not as much as their penthouse mentality but they'd, and they'd certainly assist a lot
0: that was Peter Stutchbury from Peter Stutchbury Architects based in Sydney The preference for more urban density means that we'll need affordable living models that effectively house a lot of people. Researching apartment models from overseas is key, so we can adopt styles of financing and developing that are equitable for the people who need affordable accommodation. Timothy Moore and Jane Court tell us about some of the affordable housing models that are being used outside of Australia, as well as some of the results of their research in aged
11: care housing. There are new models that you could use, but there's lots of existing models that exist already out there and lots of policy leveraging you could do, like developer contributions, inclusionary zoning. And I think the biggest issue is financing for affordable housing and finding the money to make housing more affordable. And there are ways around it to find it through different ways. For example, superannuation funds, which are used in the Netherlands to make affordable housing through tax incentives. Australia has one of the largest super fund markets in the world, but we don't leverage this. The other thing besides money is also land and lands attached to a particular exponential value. So I guess the design trick is how do you uh, decouple property value from land value, but also find finances to support these projects that aren't market driven. So Sibling looked at a few examples like build to rent model, the Grouper model, the Nightingale model, and the Zurich Cooperative model and community land trusts. And we spent the last month researching on the pros and cons of these different models. And we saw the value in the cooperative model from Switzerland and how that could be brought into the context of Melbourne. And that is through um, decoupling the building from the land value itself.
12: Um, Yeah, so Sibling were lucky enough to receive a grant from Creative Victoria to research ageing in the context of architecture and public space. And we chose to focus that research into addressing the premise that currently... Quality aged care in Australia is based on the transference of wealth of the family home. So if young Australians are no longer going to be able to afford a house, how are they going to fund their aged care? So that was the question that we asked and then we created a research platform at design hub, RMIT's design hub, to explore that through a number of different models of affordable housing that might be shared generally. So we looked at high-density, multi-generational housing. Uh, We looked at potentialities in logical family groups coming together that weren't necessarily... Um, related by blood and we looked at the current typology of grey nomadism and whether or not there was a home ownership model that could stem from that. As part of that project we also um, did a lot of research around what's happening overseas in terms of aged care and embedded aged care within other housing typology models and it certainly seems that Australia lacks a really rich landscape of typologies that allow for a a more shared home ownership model and we were asking why that actually is but I I guess we felt that that suburban dream of the nuclear family has has actually helped to isolate people further and um, maybe breaking down that as soon as possible will help speed up the process of a much more community-based aged care system.
0: That was Timothy Moore and Jane Court from Sibling Architects, based in Melbourne. One of the new models of development in Australia is the Nightingale model. Started by a collective of architects in Melbourne, this model aims to address the three areas of financial, social and environmental sustainability that can make apartment living more resilient. Andrew Maynard tells us about some of the issues that politics have played in the lack of housing affordability, and why housing models like Nightingale have started to appear in Australia.
13: Uh, Housing affordability, it it just shouldn't even be a thing. It's just so frustrating just looking at government policy over the decades and just seeing these compounding, terrible ideas, like the Howard government turning housing into a commodity market after mining. We've got more land than anybody (laughs) around and somewhere like Melbourne, it's flat, so it's really easy to build on. Uh, and yet we're one of the most unaffordable places to live. We've got the biggest houses in the world but because everybody's trying to privatise everything. Let's have a pool and a tennis court and all that. We've forgotten how to share spaces. And when I grew up, you know, it was all about the local community centre and the local pool and things like that, and they were really great places, and you'd spend your time at those places, and we didn't have our own pool and things like that. So, you know, affordability, it's like we, to, to solve it in a serious way, it's, it's a legislative requirement we need to, you know, work out our tax system. We shouldn't be in a system where it's easier to buy a seventh house than your first house, you know, and all of that stuff comes out of legislation. But nobody's doing it, so that's why Nightingale was created, you know, somebody should do something about this, well, we're we're somebodies, let's do something at great personal risk, you know, we're trying to, we'll simply do what architects do, which is we will build you a house and we will add a margin on it. It's not, we will sell you a house at whatever the highest point in the market will bear and then build it as cheaply as possible to maximize our profits. It's not how architects work. It's like, what do you want? All right, I'll design it, I'll get it priced. Um, So that's where it's frustrating when people say architects are expensive. Well, we're not expensive. What you've asked for is expensive. We can actually design really efficient housing. Uh, You've just got to not want your own pool and tennis court and things like that. We can design really efficient homes that are well connected with your neighbors and the community, which has obvious ongoing mental health issues attached to it. It's good for your mental health. We've got sort of epidemics of mental health issues in in Australia. And the way that we choose to live is a big part of how we can overcome or compound those issues. So housing affordability could be saved by a government, I think, pretty much overnight. But what we're doing is just simply trying to deliver housing, which is a human right, that suits people's needs, that is sustainable and connected with their neighbours, and is not about maximising profit. And there's nothing um, innovative about that. You go to Europe, they've been doing it forever. You know, I just, in December I was in Amsterdam and Rotterdam and talking to people, and they're like, why are you people doing this? Why isn't the government doing this? And it's like, yes, you've hit the nail on the head. Uh, Because as a culture, they try to make sure everybody has a house, it's pretty simple. See
0: that was Andrew Maynard from Austin Maynard Architects, based in Melbourne. Engaging residents in the development of affordable housing from a very early stage is a major contributor to the social success of a building. Yvette Breitenbach shares an experience where she worked on an affordable housing model in South Africa that engaged the community beyond what happens in a standard off the plan developer model.
14: Maybe the biggest challenge of designing affordable housing is that one isn't working with a very particular tangible community. Sometimes I think the most the most innovative approaches that that I have experienced in my time as an architect have been when actually you're able to really assess a particular community and engage with them. So for example, when I was in South Africa as a new graduate, we worked on um, a system of housing where the finance was addressed, people could use sweat equity, it, we called it. So they, if they spent their time and their effort actually using single concrete block presses, they then owned each block that they made. And Once they had made a certain number of those or put a certain amount of sweat equity into this house and showed commitment, they managed to get a very low interest uh, loan. So that was looking at the the financial aspect of it. Then looking at the, the design of it, we actually designed a system which was modular where for each type of room, you actually worked in one meter length modules to a standard width. That standard width was determined by a particular truss form. So one worked and designed that particular form of format or or house design with a member of the community. And the building again entailed a bit of sweat equity as well as actually people upskilled and then became people who who did the building of it so that was an incredibly exciting way of talking about housing affordability for people who effectively had very little sometimes it is the most extreme of circumstances that that makes it easier to be innovative and in a way i think that so coming back to my original statement of saying well who is it applied to when we're talking about affordability, I think we need to really define different areas of affordability far more carefully and, um, and then look at the constraints that are peculiar to, to that and then address it uh, holistically.
0: That was Yvette Breitenbach, Director of Morrison and Breitenbach Architects, based in Hobart. Housing affordability doesn't have a silver bullet. While there are many people working to reduce the impact of climbing house prices, it will take a coordinated effort to change this systemic and economic issue. In their search to design homes for future generations, architects can't just use the cheapest materials and most cost-effective products in their buildings. These items mightn't come with warranties or be compliant with Australia's building safety standards. When an architect designs something, they're required by law to design buildings that are safe and will stand the test of time, while still meeting the client's needs. G for Greenaway highlights some of the many initiatives that could be explored in affordable housing developments that could achieve better results than standard building practices.
15: Housing affordability is an enduring issue that we're all confronting. There is a, an increased divide between the haves and the haves-nots. And the challenge here is can architecture become an enabler to facilitate opportunities around unlocking that difficult puzzle that is housing affordability and provide opportunities for the many rather than the few. And there has been a tendency, I think, where we're focused on the bespoke residents and the the high net worth individuals as the only people who we engage with. But I think there's certainly a role for architects to play in, in social housing, in looking at issues around density, dealing with some of the challenges that that our cities do have. And coming up with systems and processes where we can build efficiently, build modestly, providing opportunities which are both frugal and, and simple to construct and don't cost the earth. We know construction costs are billowing out. It is a supply and demand proposition. There is obviously possibilities around exploring further prefabrication, I think, is, is certainly a way ahead in terms of you know, unlocking some of those challenges. But I think equally there is a role of policy and government to create the mechanisms to look at some of the challenges around the funding of developments and housing particularly. I think certainly we need to develop better design standards so we're not shoehorning people into dog boxes and tiny little spaces. I think certainly we need to think much more around the role of public open space gardens for houses, having that respite outside of the envelope of the building. We also need to challenge some of the ways in which the banking sector has actually become a sort of a law unto themselves around making it very difficult for people to find an entry point or a a foothold into building or designing their own homes or even getting on the property later. But also, we need to think, uh, I think, a bit more innovatively around this sort of assumption that we must all own our own home. Can we start to challenge some of the stereotypes that the quarter acre block or the standard home is something that everyone must have, if we start to interrogate things like renting, looking at some of the other alternate housing typologies, cluster housing, different forms of housing models, I think looking at some of the levers around the finance behind property, these are all the things that we need to grapple with. It's a complex range of questions, it's something that we can certainly have a voice in and I think we should certainly be advocating much more strongly as a profession to say well, good design actually assists in well-being. housing is a, a core need and a requirement of all people, so how do we actually uh, work in with those dynamics and provide opportunities particularly for those who are least able. The social housing dimension, the housing affordability issues which are impacting on things like homelessness, this again comes back to our philosophical position of what is our role in architecture to become you know, key advocates to improve the lot for, for our communities.
0: This has been episode seven of Hearing Architecture. Thank you so much for listening. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review, and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favorite podcast app. This episode of Hearing Architecture featured the following guests. Rob McGoran, Janine Fanton, Belinda Allwood, Joe Rees, Rod Simpson, Kylie Shunans, Professor Philip Tallis, Joe Agius, Lee Hillam, Peter Stutchbury, Timothy Moore, Jane Court, Andrew Maynard, Yvette Breitenbach, and of Greenaway. The interviews in this episode were produced around Australia by Imagine Committee members. Jamila Jahangiri, Daniel Hall, Kirsty Voles, Callie Marnane, Chris Morley, Sam McQueenie, Rhys Curry, Brad Weatherall, Jess Beaver, Bede Taylor, Rebecca Webster, and Daniel Moore. The AIA production team was Daniela Crawley, Stacey Rodder, Monique Woodward, and Tom McKenzie. Produced by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects, and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.